The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about human trafficking. And just recently, I remember reading in the Orange County Register about a big arrest of a gang that was doing human trafficking. And it is in the news all over. It's hidden quite often. And it's a privacy issue for those people who are slaves to human trafficking, whether it be sex for sex or for work, for labor, for slaves, whatever it is, it is a, they lose all of their dignity and their privacy and it is a horrible situation. And so I had seen this new book that just came out called Vulnerable, Rethinking Human Trafficking by Raleigh Sadler. And I thought I'd get him to come on and talk about this wonderful book and what the new ways to think about it and how we as individuals can actually help when we see something going on. Let me tell you a little bit about Raleigh. Raleigh has, um, has served in the Christian ministry since 2001. He currently is the founder and di- executive director of Let My People Go, headquartered in New York City. His passion is to see the local church fight injustices like human trafficking by loving those who are most vulnerable. He believes that the church should be leading the way in the fight against human trafficking because the gospel frees us to pursue justice and mercy in our communities. With this message, he has worked with churches, universities, and other collaborative organizations around the country. He believes it is the responsibility of the church and all of us really to love those who are at risk of exploitation. So his new book is called Vulnerable, Rethinking Human Trafficking, and it just came out and you can find out more about him in one of these two websites, um, Raleigh, that's R-A-L-E-I-G-H, Sadler, S-A-D-L-E-R, dot com or lmpgnetwork.org, which stands for letmypeoplego.org. And so we are just thrilled to have you join us. Thank you so much for joining us from the East Coast, Raleigh. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Raleigh, this is really such an important book. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, when I read the introduction about how you were on the subway 
and you saw this horrible thing happen and and you didn't know what to do. And then later you learned what to do. I wonder if you would mind sharing that little story to to get us thinking about, because there are a lot of times we see things and we think it's horrible. We just don't know what to say or do, right? So can you share that with us? Yeah. So I was, I had just finished speaking at a church and as I was leaving, I went into the subway and I saw a young woman. She was probably between 20 and 25 she wasn't from New York City, but not many people are. So I, I figure she was visiting. She had a passport with her that looked like an Eastern European passport. All that said, she was with someone. So I don't know if she was officially being trafficked, but or actually being trafficked rather. But as a sub, as a, as the subway came, as the train came, the doors opened. And the person she was with, kind of, he kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't see him at first. He kind of came out of nowhere. He grabbed her as hard as he could. She lurched forward, and he pushed her onto the train. Mm. And um, then she dropped her passport. He jumped out and picked that up, and then the train doors shut. Now, there, like I said, chances are she wasn't trafficked, but she was vulnerable, and she was being exploited. And so I didn't end up doing anything because it happened so fast, and – I really didn't know in that moment what to do. So I called a friend of mine who is with federal law enforcement and I just called him and I'm like, you need to teach me how to fight. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to respond, but I, I felt helpless and I wanted to do something. And he, he said, you know, we can, I've got someone who could train you. But at the end of the day, was that the best thing you could have done? And I said, no, of course it wasn't, but it was something. And I feel like so many of us, we would rather do something even if it's the wrong thing, then do nothing. And, and we have to really think through that. And what he taught me was, he was like, you could, you could have jumped on a train, found out where they were going, and then called 911 or 311 and asked law enforcement for a welfare check. And then they could have gone and checked and seen if, if this person was in danger. Right. And so there's, there's always something we can do, but if we're not prepared, right, then we won't do anything when the chips are down. Right. And, you know, I mean, it could be really a dangerous situation if you start saying, what are you doing? Leave her alone. You know, then the person has a gun and kills you and her. So I think that was really the smartest thing that law enforcement said. Find out where they're going, then call law enforcement and let them take care of it. So that's that's a, a great uh, tip for, for all of us. And so we see things like that. You know, all of us see things that we think are really horrible. Like I see, you know, be in Walmart and I see a mother just hitting their kid. And sometimes I'll say something, you know, but I feel like, what should I do? Should I, should I call the police right now? Or, you know, I mean, you're talking about vulnerable people, whether it's human trafficking or parents who just don't know how to parent. It's, uh, it's very upsetting when we see things that is hurting another person when they're really vulnerable. So how is it that you decided to write this book then? Well, I was just realizing that there were so many people within my tribe, which is basically the Christian faith community, that they wanted to do something, but they didn't know how to respond. And so I wanted to show people that anyone can fight human trafficking when they focus on vulnerability, any of us. Um, regardless of our faith tradition, we can do something if we care for the vulnerable person in our path, in our community. And rather than like 
I feel like so it's so easy to say, okay, so if I'm going to fight human trafficking, then maybe I need to kick down doors of brothels or maybe I need to start a safe home or something to that, yeah, to that is- level. And I think what would happen if we said, you know what? We're just going to love that vulnerable person in front of us because at the end of the day, someone who's vulnerable, whether they are a new immigrant, whether they're in the LGBTQ community, whether they're an at-risk youth or from a single-parent household or they're impacted by incarceration, what have you, if someone is vulnerable or they're just looking for, like, love and acceptance because they didn't receive that growing up, if someone is vulnerable, they could be trafficked, they are trafficked, or they have been trafficked. And so when you're engaging someone from a relational standpoint rather than a transactional one, you'll find yourself doing the work of prevention, intervention, and aftercare all in one fell swoop just by engaging that person who is right in front of you. Right. And not turning the other way and pretending it's not happening. Yeah. Right. So Absolutely. Can- Can you give us a definition of really what you mean by human trafficking? Yeah, human trafficking at its most base, um, a base understanding of it really is the exploitation of vulnerability for commercial gain. Right. And so with every case of human trafficking, you're going to have someone exploiting the vulnerabilities of a person. Yeah, I think about... for, uh, For their own personal gain. Right. I mean, you think about the really egregious things about how all these African-American people were brought over as slaves, you know, to to work the land in, in our country and in other countries. And then you think about the Chinese that were brought over to do that. And then, you know, all the women that we have, you know, in our area that have been brought over for sex trafficking and that um, there's there's it's happening all the time, continuing, even from, you know, history, it isn't, it isn't over. And it's, uh, it's often quite hidden, right in a a beautiful area like Orange County, California, you don't think about human trafficking. And yet, we see this happening, people coming up from Mexico, you know, like crammed into, um, you know, the back of a truck, you know, and some of them die just even before they get here. So these are, there's so many types of human trafficking. So, um, so what are some of the myths or misconceptions that people have about human trafficking? You know, honestly, one of the myths that I think is very prevalent is this idea that human trafficking is sex trafficking, that when someone says human trafficking, they mean sex trafficking. But for us to really understand that when we hear stats like there are more than 40.3 million people impacted by modern-day slavery, those mm. who are trapped in human trafficking around the world, when we hear that, it's easy for people to say, oh, well, that's 40 million people trapped in the sex trade. That's not true. You, human trafficking consists of sex trafficking, yes, but people are also trafficked for labor and domestic servitude. In some places around the world, they can be trafficked to be child soldiers. They can be forced to work in um, the mines, digging out precious minerals, diamonds, the the whole nine. And so we have to have a more fully orbed understanding of human trafficking if we're ever going to do anything about it. Right. I know there was an arrest by a very wealthy family in um, Newport Beach, California, which is a very, very expensive area where they had 
brought over somebody from the Middle East and they forced labor. There was no sex going on, but they forced labor to, she worked, you know, like every day. She had no time off. She had no, she had no outside, um, communication with family or friends or anything. And finally, finally they found this and they, they did prosecute the family for doing that for human trafficking. It had nothing to do with sex. It was just slavery. So it can happen anywhere, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, your book focuses not only on the vulnerable who are being trafficked, but you know how each of us is vulnerable. Can you, you know, elaborate about that vulnerability that all of us can relate to? Yeah. So at the end of the day, we all think when we hear about human trafficking, we can approach it and say, you know what, I'm going to help them. But we aren't necessarily prepared for the fact that as we start engaging people who've experienced trauma, that we are going to be triggered in our own ways. It's going to excite something in us. It's going to trigger something in us or maybe like some things that we dealt with in our past but haven't fully processed. Something's going to happen where um, we experience kind of the emotional residue of caring for hurting people. And so, so yeah, unless we are processing our own brokenness, we'll never be able to help people because one, it may push us away, but two, if we're not processing it, then we're going to come at that person that we're trying to help from a standpoint of a hero rather than a fellow vulnerable person. And if we come at it from the standpoint of we're both vulnerable, then and only then will we be able to actually connect with them. It's funny, the things that we think disqualify us for caring for people actually qualify us in the eyes of those who have been impacted by trauma. Right. Well, when you talk in your book about, um, you know, when one, when a person is characterized in human trafficking, it's one person has power over that other person and exploits them. So like you said, it could be forced labor, it could be sex trafficking, it could be, you know, going into the military, whatever it is. Um, Talk about that power imbalance um, as being like the beginning of all that. Yeah, so at the end of the day, when we think of human trafficking, we, we have this picture that has probably been characterized by what we've seen on the news or what we've seen in Hollywood. And it's this trafficker that, you know, may be connected to a trafficking ring, whatever. That does happen, absolutely. But a lot of times, traffickers come across as, you know, well, there's somebody in the same community as the person they're trafficking. We see this kind of worldwide. And so they may not be the most wealthy person every time. They may not be the best looking person or person who looks like they have it all together, but a trafficker will still have more power than the person they're exploiting. They have leverage over that person. And so it's always someone who has more power and status than the person that they're going to exploit. And so for us, if we want to help, we have to be aware of how our own power comes across because it's very easy to, though we may be well-meaning, if we are engaging someone who has been exploited or is vulnerable to exploitation, we could exploit or re-exploit them through a misuse of our power. So if we just have to be very cognizant 
of of power. So tell me a little bit more about what you mean about that by trying to help them, we could end up really exploit them more. What do you mean by that? I mean that if we're not aware of how our our power is received by them or how it comes across to them, um, we could we could end up re-traumatizing them. So what I mean is... Give me an example. So say someone comes to you, say that you meet someone and you're like, let me help you. I'm going to help you fix this and I'm going to do this, this, and this. And we're treating them like a project to be mm. fixed or a problem to be solved rather than a person to be loved. When we approach them like that, we're basically acting as if we have it all together and they don't. And, you know, we'll say things like this, right? We'll say we need to be a voice for the voiceless. Well, here's the deal about that statement. It's a touch tone deaf because at the end of the day, these people do have a voice. We're just talking more loudly. And so what would happen if we actually said you have a voice? How can I come alongside you? How can how can I help you? Say and do the things that you want to do. What are your dreams? What are your desires? Yeah. How can I be of assistance? Because at that point, we're not being a voice for the voiceless. We're helping someone raise their voice. Right. And that's that's much better. Right. And it's a better use of our power. Right. So it's uh, we're using our power or our understanding to empower those who don't realize that they do have the power. I I guess how I see it is I do a lot of divorce mediation and other types of mediation. And a lot of times the people uh, that I mediate with when they're in conflict or they're in a divorce is one one person is very vulnerable and the other person is overpowering. And so one of the things that I need to do with my clients is to empower them to say, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, I have to give them things like if, if they've constantly been berated or controlled or put down, then I need to teach them how to say, you know, I'm just not comfortable with that. Or if something is put on them to do, like you need to do this, just say, let me think about that to give them tools to empower themselves. That's what I do when somebody is very, uh, there's such a big empower, uh, power balance, imbalance rather. You know, you see that all the time when you're a mediator. There's always an, uh, a power imbalance. One side has more money. Uh, one side has more uh power because they are the employer or they were the spouse who was, you know, the one who was working and had all the money and whatever. So, um, I, you know, whenever you're vulnerable, it's helpful to have someone who can teach you how to be empowered, just like the uh, law enforcement friend of yours who empowered you of what to do when you see human trafficking, giving you tools to do it. So I guess, is that what you mean? Like if we can give them tools to empower themselves and get themselves out of a situation? Yeah, and I think I think when we use the term empower, um, there's a real sense that we we can't make someone empowered, but we can create this atmosphere of empowerment to where we remove obstacles and we give tools and we right. say, hey, here are some things you can do. Here are 
some approaches you can take and let them go go in that direction. Right, right. Give them the tools that they can use that they then, once they start using the tools and, and see that it's working for them, then they are empowered themselves. We, No one can make someone else empower, <laughs> powerful, but they can give them tools to let themselves be powerful. So let's right. move on to your ministry, Let My People Go. So how does your organization work to combat human trafficking? So our mission is to empower the local church to fight human trafficking, this big mega issue, by loving those who are most vulnerable, by intentionally caring for the people that traffickers target. And so by doing that, like I said earlier, when you care for a vulnerable person, you're caring for those who could be, are, or have been trafficked. You're doing the work of prevention, intervention, and aftercare all in one fell swoop. And we go into a church, and rather than saying, we're going to help you develop a program. We say, we want to help you kind of change the DNA of your church a little bit. We want to help shape your culture of your church a little bit because we don't need more transactional ministry. We need something that, like, something that's unbelievably relational. So we go in and we say, we're going to help you develop a congregational model whereby you can identify those most vulnerable in your community. You can empower them. You can protect them and you can ultimately include them. And so as we do that, we help them do a community needs assessment where we help their justice ministry team that we develop. We help this team do an assessment where they're talking to the local stakeholders who are already working with vulnerable people. They could be law enforcement, social services, local nonprofits. They could even be talking to the vulnerable themselves and saying, what are the needs here? Who's most vulnerable? How are people exploited? Who's exploited? And after a while, about three to six months of a process like this, you're going to see something float to the top after you've talked to all these people. And you may identify, oh, it's those who are in single parent households or it's the LGBTQ community or it's the homeless community. And at this point you say, okay, how are we going to engage them as a church? And so how are we going to empower them? What does that look like? Um, how are we going to come alongside of what God may already be doing in their lives? And then as we're doing that and saying, hey, what are your dreams? What are your passions? We have to think through, how are we protecting them? What are our policies? Um, do we do background checks on those who are working with vulnerable populations in our church? Right. I mean, look at the Catholic and, Church, which we've found out about, right? Uh, right. All the revelations, and you know, in the name of God. So it's... Uh, and it's, it's, it's really important Catholic, to do that. Sadly. No, 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 it isn't. Obviously, yeah, but they've been the the you know obviously they've been the most egregious that we've found out about, right? <laughs> what it what we're finding out now is even within Protestant denominations, it's happening like over and over and over. And several stories have broken just recently, and what scares me is that one of the reasons this is happening is people. I once heard this phrase, and I don't use it much because I don't love it. And I don't necessarily agree with the premise of it, but there's this idea that people can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And as I prefaced, I don't, I don't love that statement, but there is an aspect of we can be so focused on these spiritual realities that we forget the physical context that they are in. And we forget that we have to actually work any group that has a lot of people in one space you have to work to protect that group. You have to make sure that there are background checks. You have to make sure that there are policies. You have to make sure that everyone working with you knows how to report things 
And if there is a criminal offense, that it's not just taken to the leaders of the church, but if there is a criminal accusation, that it's taken to the police immediately. Right. A lot of faith communities don't do this. They run it up the, the ladder, and it may not even get to it may not even get to law enforcement. There may yeah. be victim blaming. There may be all these things that happen before that. And what I'm telling churches is you have to have a plan, a vulnerability response plan, and we help them do that, that when these things happen, yeah. you know, we, we list it. If these things happen, you immediately call law enforcement because your leadership can visit the accused in jail. Right. You don't have to have that person come to your house and say, did this really happen, Bob? And then Bob's like, no, of course not. And then you come to find out that Bob's been abusing people in the church for the last 30 years. I've heard stories like this over and over and over and over and over. We have to change that. We have to change the culture. And so that's that's what we do on the congregational side. But and, then yeah, we I also mean, if we think about it, well. when you talk about imbalance of power or the power that people have, you know, you hear about this with teachers. Uh, you hear about this, you know, b- being vulnerable with the, you know, uh, the vulnerable students who are molested or, again, the the priest who has all that power that he's supposed to be close, closer to God or whatever, or, or the minister. So whoever is in that situation where they have that power over someone else, it goes back to that whole issue of power versus no power and, and, can, and how they're vulnerable and can be taken advantage of, right? So that's right. great. Well, some, what are some of the events that I know you've done some events, like Justice Weekends and... What, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we we do um, three things. One one we do one thing we do is the church partnerships, where we partner with a church for at least a year, and we help them develop a congregational collaborative response to addressing human trafficking in our community by focusing on vulnerability. Another thing that we do, it's one of our programs. It's called the Justice Weekend, where we go into a church for a weekend and we talk about this. We talk about this give kind of I kind of give a state of the union on human trafficking. Then I talk about the myths of human trafficking because we want to address that because you'll never see the the real deal unless you know the counterfeits. Right. So we we study the counterfeits, and then you know we have a panel discussion with myself and several of the stakeholders in that community, wherever it is in the United States. You know we'll help them connect with stakeholders and we'll talk about human trafficking. And then after that, I talk to the leadership and say, hey, you've had a chance to learn about this. What would this look like to move forward? And this is where hopefully we would be able to sow the seeds for a partnership. Um, And that's ultimately the Justice Weekend. We also do the Let My People Go experience where student groups and those who are in churches can come to New York and learn how to fight human trafficking by caring for that vulnerable person in front of them in the city. And so if you can do it, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. I think that's what Frank Sinatra said. Right, so right, we, right. We really bring people in just to yeah. say, we want you to do this on the ground, and we want you to take this back, and we want to continue to work with you. So tell people your story. Tell people what you learned, and then and bring us. And what I've found is people who've come up, I've had students who've changed their majors. I've had adults who've changed their vocations, all because they – I would argue they they met God in the face of a vulnerable person. They engaged someone and they just saw 
and experience something that was just so life-changing that they couldn't go back to the way life was. And I've just seen that over and over and over. Well, that is almost a perfect way to end because we're just about out of time. And it just seemed to me like this program is really good for bullying, too, because we have these poor Mm -hmm. kids that are bullied, whether they're with, you know, the LGBT community or whatever bullying that they experience. That is, again, that power imbalance of, you know, these kids that take advantage of these kids because they're immigrants or whatever it is. So what a wonderful program. So. I just want to mention your book again before we go. And so if you give the name of your book and your website, it's time to go. All right. My book is Vulnerable, Rethinking Human Trafficking. And you find you can find it where all good books are sold. And my website is lmpgnetwork.org. Let my people go, lmpgnetwork.org. And also Raleigh Sadler, that's R A L. E-I-G-H Sadler, S-A-D-L-E-R dot com, who is our author. So thank you so much for joining you and uh, for joining us. And it was great to be joined with you and on this wonderful topic of the great work that you're doing. And Raleigh, please stay in touch and we'll have you back again. Okay? Thank you. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.